hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman. Today, I am lucky enough to be chatting with comedian, writer and podcaster, Michael Mee. So, hey, Michael, thanks for chatting today. So, usually I like to start off by finding out a little bit about your more formative years. Um, what was young Michael like? What were you like as, uh, as a kid at school? Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say was I wasn't born in Ireland. Uh, like a lot of comedians, I was born elsewhere. So I was born in Canada. So I came over when I was five. So I do a bit of stand-up about this, but like, you know, in Cork in the 1970s, being from Canada was like pretty unusual, you know. <laughs> so, so they paraded me around the school and I went around with my Canadian accent and went, hi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I suppose initially then there was that, that I was the outsider, which I suppose makes art in the long run. like, And then, I mean, I do a whole show, but this, I did a show called Confessions of Swat, which was me arriving from Canada. And so I just started doing one in school. Um, and that, you know, as anybody, you know, I, I suppose a lot of people will know that could be a bit of a tricky one to navigate then. Like, you know, uh, I mean, to be fair, most of my classmates were okay with it because we were, we were say, we'd known each other since we were six or seven. But then what happened was guys repeated, so they came into the class and they just knew of my reputation. Oh, right. Anything I, the, the idea at that stage was if you did anything, they sent you around the school and uh, you would be like, uh, you know, my, my thing when I was very small was that I was, I could spell words, you know, so they would send me up to spell a rhinoceros to, <laughs> You know, and you can imagine how well that went with these older <laughs> kids, you know. So uh, it was a bit like having a target on your back, you know. And when I did the show, I did previews. I was still trying to kind of feel it out and the international. And a friend of my brother's was there, and I was talking about I remember, like, learning off. I can spell hippopotamus. P-O-T-A-M-U-S. <laughs> And rhinoceros and all this. And afterwards, he came up to me after the show and he went, electricity? That's the one I remember. <laughs> and I was very impressed because I couldn't spell it at all. Like, <laughs> so yeah, so like it was, it was actually fine until sixth class when these guys arrived and they were, like I'd won a poetry competition, so I was sent around the school reciting my poem. Oh, <laughs> you God. Know, so, oh wow! Like I, I actually, um, I actually know this guy. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether this is a name drop, but he he's well known, I suppose. Uh, he's a film director called John Crowley. He made uh, Brooklyn and Intermission and that sort of stuff. Um, and he was uh, like a neighbor, really. Like you know, he's a year younger than me. So, like, I kind of just knew him from around, like, I, w I wouldn't, because I was thinking then when I was kind of meeting him, like, well, like, would I call him a friend? And he was more like, well, like, he's a friend, he's a good friend of of a guy whose brother is my brother's best friend. He <laughs> 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 had that sort of local court thing. But anyway, what I'm getting to was, uh, I said to him, the name of the poem was Gars, by the way. I don't really like Gars, they often wear their hair in cars. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, this was this nine-year-old uh, sort of disquisition on the opposite sex, you know. 
So anyway, this guy was in primary school with me, and I met him in like 2003 or something when I was I wanted to I was moving to London, and he was in London, and he was giving me some advice. And he just he said, uh, "Well, of course, there's always girls, girls, girls." He remembered it from when he was like, I suppose he must be nine, you know, and like everybody in that school remembered me going around with my stupid prize-winning form, you know. So it was, it, it became tricky at that stage then because they were, I mean, I think they'd been made stay back and they weren't too happy about it. And so I was kind of getting, you know, bullies and, mm. you know, stuff like that. So, um, and then in secondary school, I got a lot of bullying. So, you know, I mean, you know, I suppose like I kind of think that I was happy out until a certain stage. And yeah. It took me a while in secondary school just to learn how to survive. You know, maybe, I suppose you worry then when you're older, like, well, did I mute what was me, you know, in order yeah. to survive, you know? Yeah, yeah. But there definitely came a stage in about third year. I had arrived in from, you know, it's a long story, but this was a kind of a, a private school and we, I had gone to a national school, but they had their own primary school. So most of them would have known each other for years. And there was something like 13 of us came from outside. Oh, right. So I had arrived in, and again, the academic achievement thing kind of didn't help. You know, I, I found out that they were being told, well, why can't you be like this guy? Oh, no. Which I like that really, the teachers really just didn't, like, <laughs> the whole basis of how they treated it was, this will inspire these kids. <laughs> so, like, I wasn't aware of that at all. I mean, you know, but I, I was kind of told then, like, well, we're told we have to look up to you, and why should we look up to you? And oh, like, it, was, man. it was kind of absurd. I mean, you know, you're you're like 12 or 13, and you're going like, well, like, you know, that they, they couldn't see, you know, and I suppose it was hard enough for me to understand. But I mean, yeah, yeah. No, it looked like I had volunteered to go around the school <laughs> making people feel bad about themselves, you know. So, you know, like, it, I suppose maybe when they get older and they look back, they might be able to see, well, look, it's not his fault that the teachers might be saying stuff like that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So um I would sort of say by maybe about third year, I began to learn some tricks to kind of get through it. And there was a guy who, who was bullying me who was dropped from we were streamed. So I was in the A class, of course, because I was Mr. <laughs> but this guy got dropped from the A class. And he was very, you know, and you're teenage kids, he was very unsettled. And he was um, from Dublin, I think, originally. So he was kind of an outsider too. And, right. But he had been really the problem, a lot of the problem, not all of the problem. So once he was in a separate class to me, it got a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Um, oh, kids, kids are awful at that age though, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just one of those things. You can't, you can't escape it, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose a, a kind of an issue for me was that I was very small as well. So, yeah. you know, there's one thing sticking out as an outsider, but also I was bullyable, you know, like, to, to, <laughs> I'd say, like, it, it's, when I see it discussed and depicted, it doesn't really ring true to me, like, to my experience. Yeah, yeah. Like, the way it's kind of tends to be portrayed is, you know, I mean, first of all, the great, like, well, bullies are cowards, you stand up to them, and, you know, 
which is, which is fine unless you're four foot six. It's never that know. straightforward, is it? You know? No, you know, it's a little bit sort of insulting. But also, I guess that sometimes people can become, can bully. I don't know, does that make them bullies per se? But in certain circumstances, they can end up doing shit like that, you know? Yes. So it's not this kind of black and white thing. I mean, there certainly were guys that in primary school who you would go, okay, that guy is a bully. Yeah. You know, and, and you'd often find that they had weird home lives and stuff. But then there would be people who, you know, maybe were just doing it as a sideline with me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, sort of doable. But, yeah, so my mother kind of thinks that, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't let that define you. You had a very happy child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, shut up about that, you know. Oh, oh look at you now, Michael, you know. Oh, well, look at me now. Successful, yeah. successful comedian. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, go. so you became a solicitor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you go from being a solicitor to, to being a comedian? Well, I know Bob well, Mortimer, Bob Mortimer had a kind of similar. Yeah, there's a kind of a weird thing about law where, a number of comedians were had law backgrounds. So John right. Cleese, John Cleese was a, a lawyer as well. Right. Yeah, like it, it's kind of. Well, I mean, I used to say, I mean, this might sound bad, but especially when I explained about this this sort of SWAT angle, but I used to sort of joke that you know law was for people who who loved English got, but got too many points for arts. Like, <laughs> It's like, you know, the whole thing was that your parents would be going, you know, I mean, you know, we, we resisted this really, but like there was a lot of pressure to do mage because that was the highest points. And if you don't do that, you do it like engine and so on. So there was certainly a number of these guys. I mean, Brendan O'Connor did commerce, but I gather, you know, he'd probably be annoyed at me for saying that. But <laughs> I, I know that, that he was kind of uh, saying to one of the English tutors, like, you know, like, this this is my thing is English, you know. And sort of like, I, I think a lot of people got kind of pushed in. So a lot a lot of lawyers would love English, you know, and, and love communication. And I mean, what happened to me was I, I lectured then. So I qualified as a solicitor, but then I lectured for four years. Right. So that's kind of, in a way, a more understandable trajectory because you're in front of people. Mm. I mean, I, I remember when I first played in Dublin, I played in the Comedy Cellar, and I thought, this is a really small room. I thought, <laughs> this is a famous place, you know, and Tommy Tiernan was yeah. Yeah. emceeing. And I said to him, how many how many people would you get in here? And he said, oh, well, you know, like, if you really stuffed it in, you might get 80. And I'd been lecturing to 250 people. Like, so, <laughs> so, it was, so it was an advantage, because I know that a lot of people were coming in going, like, oh, my God, all these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, 80 myself. people. But, like, I mean, it was just that I was used to, and it was a form of performance, and I was kind of trying to be funny the odd bit in lecturing as well, you know. Yeah, how did the comedy, I mean, you don't obviously, you know, just be lecturing one day and then think, oh, I think I'll, I'll try some stand-up. Do you know what I mean? What was the, what was the progression there? How did that transference well, happen? I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I was always, besides the poetry, <laughs> I was, uh, there was an arrangement where, like, they would, I mean, it's, it, was, it all seems kind of funny really now, but they'd give us an essay and, I was always the one who was kind of like ran out of time because of so many ideas. Uh, 
So I'd come in and I'd have, you know, X amount of written where I go like, oh, well, I didn't get to finish it. So they'd say, they'd give me extra time, but then I would read it out to the class. And that was kind of something that some poor souls look forward to and others <laughs> resented hugely, like, you know. So, I mean, the funny thing is, without, you know, slightly giving away the denouement of the Confessions of a SWAT show, but one of the guys who bullied me, I met him in later life. And, uh, this guy that I knew said, oh, do you know who's here? And it was, it was this guy. And first of all, he didn't remember me, which was very oh, galling. Wow. <laughs> you know? I was a bit, uh, you know, I was impressed with that. And then the guy that I was with said, oh, you know, you know, I won't say his name. Let's say Jeff, but it wasn't Jeff. <laughs> Jeff's, Jeff's got a book of poetry coming out next week. <laughs> and I was outraged. <laughs> what your misunderstood childhood. Like. The ultimate irony. <laughs> yeah, so like, it's quite possible that he was watching me going around going like, you know, this guy can't write poetry. Notes. <laughs> I could do better than this one. So, um, oh yeah, so I was always writing, uh, you know, always, you know, and when I was a child, they would say, what do you want to be? And I would say, an author, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really what I thought I was going to do when I was, when I was lecturing, I was writing a book, an novel. And I went to the Galway Arts Festival in 94. Mm-hmm. I started doing stand up in 97. So I went to 94 and I saw a bunch of comedy shows. Like we had never, like there wasn't really stand up around, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There really wasn't, you know? I mean, debating was the thing in college, you know? And like, that's where I was kind of trying to be funny and, you know, heckling, you know, boorishly trying to be funny. And so it was the first time I'd really seen any amount of sort of stand up, I suppose. Yeah. You know, their one man shows really. And even though I kind of enjoyed them, I kind of thought like, well, that's not out of, I I could do that. (laughs) So then, you know, I got ill basically. So I have kind of health issues. So I kind of thought I'll take a year out right, and uh, try and get my novel published. And so I was writing stuff. I kind of thought, well, I'll move to Dublin and, uh, you know, maybe I could do a one-man show. You know, I kind of had written jokes and stuff. So then uh, a friend of mine had a, a camera which in those days was like a bigger deal than it is now. Like, <laughs> like you know, I mean, nobody had a camera, like a video camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he he's an interesting character, actually. You know, he, he, he had all these schemes, but he did most of them. Like, he, he ran a, an indie night in Cork called Freak Scene, which was this kind of legendary uh, indie night, and he runs the chain of coffee shops now. I mean, run wow. a chain of juice bars. So, like, he's got an interesting... <laughs> He's in a band called Bo Morty, who are kind of a cork band, a kind of friend of mine. But anyway, so he's an interesting guy. But so I saw this ad uh, that Kenny Live, and they were doing a, a stand-up competition. Yeah. And you had to send in a clip, and just by pure chance, this friend of mine had a video camera. <laughs> so I wow. just, I just said, well, look, do you mind if I, you know? So I got the stuff I'd written, and I just looked down the barrel of it, and uh, you know. So I got to the final of that, and even though there was a lot of very unsatisfactory elements to the way it was run, they cancelled 
the semi-final and rerun it because they didn't like the results. So, uh, you know, it was uh, an early encounter with RTE. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the messing around that can go on, you know. But the actual the guy who judged it was a Irish Times. One of the judges was an Irish Times journalist. Mm-hmm. So, like, what I was kind of being told was that people liked my writing. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, I had literally never, I, I performed in a talent show in Limerick where I was working. I was, I was lecturing in UL. And that was it. Like, I literally had done once that I got up and, you know. So, like, I was being told that Dylan Moran had seen my tape and had wow. laughed out. Like, I actually met him and he said, see, I, I, this joke, which, I don't know, that never quite worked as well again. But the joke was that, um, well, a, a short version of it. Well, basically, the joke was that I met a girl in a nightclub that she'd come up to me and she said, I've got a water bed at home. How would you like to come back and try it out? And my th- first thought was, this is fantastic. And then the next thing I thought was like, with all, you know, you know, with all these diseases around, like, and this person I've met this girl and, uh, first thing she says, I've got a water bed, you know, I don't want to catch a Veruca. <laughs> and that, that was, that was a joke. So, when I met, first time I met Dylan Moran, he said, I heard your waterbed joke and laughed out loud. So it was, it was really kind of nice that I was meeting, you know, I was meeting people who were already being. Yeah, yeah. This journalist was going on Kilkenny apparently telling, I mean, it's this time 25 years ago, <laughs> telling my jokes, you know. So I did this heat for So You Think You're Funny, the newcomers competition in Edinburgh. And Tommy Tiernan was the, holder of the title he'd won mm. the previous year. So he was the MC. That's why I was saying I when he was saying that it took eighty or whatever, that was when I met him, you know. So I did the gig and I <laughs> there was one joke. I mean this was all really just me as a writer, you know, at home going, Well maybe this might be funny, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I had a joke about a guy trying to pick a fight with me and one of the lines was like that I couldn't get through to him. It was like telling knock-knock jokes to a bedwing. <laughs> and Tommy, like, literally leapt to his feet and started clapping, you know? Wow. So so it was good from the point of view that, I mean, I kind of talked about how the size of the crowds had been something that actually wasn't a, that much of an issue, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Also, the kind of who-do-you-think-you-are thing was reduced a bit because... A few people like Dylan and Tommy, who had actually seen one of the few comedy shows I'd seen was the two of them, were, were being nice to me. And Tommy said, like, well, where, did, where did you come from? And I was kind of going, oh, like, is, 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 it all, is it any good? Like, you know, so he said that he was doing the arts festival in Galway. Would I come down and play with, play shows? Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was, it was very, you know, so I was just starting my year out, but the next thing I was like, I was getting gigs, you know, so, so it kind of just kind of happened really, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. That must have been amazing nice. to get that feedback from, you yeah, know, from it was, guys it like was that. It was very nice. Like it got, it got, it wasn't all like, like I started like a firecracker, but then, you know, resistance was down the line, but you know, <laughs> Initially, like, uh, Rich Hall said some nice things about me in an interview as well. And I think that at the start, because I was all about material, I was quite, you know, quotable amongst comedians and, you know. Yeah. So, like, I was kind of told, right, okay, the material is fine. You need to 
just learn how to perform, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, so what's your writing process? Are you kind of, I'm, I'm guessing that you're quite strict with, you know, taking time to write and that kind of stuff. Do you kind of take a certain amount of time per day to write or how, how does it work? Well, I mean, I wrote a, um, a non-fiction book mm. that I finished recently. So, I mean, I, when you say writing, it's not just stand-up, you know. Yeah. Uh, like, stand-up used to be more about filling notebooks. Right, right, yeah. But often, often the writing would be more, you know, you watch a movie and somebody uses an expression and you go, oh, that's a funny expression. Yeah, or you, you mishear it. And you think, oh, what did he say? Did he actually say that? Because that would be funny if he said that, you know. So, like, as an example of stuff that's in an old book, like I was watching, I love old movies, and there was a like a film noir, maybe The Killers or one of those kind of old film noir. And this one said to the guy, "What, what are you doing? You're, you don't put a hat on a bed. That's bad luck." And I, I just. I, I don't know whether I've heard that. I mean, it's a really old thing, obviously, because it goes back to hats, like, you know. So I wrote that down then. I said, well, there's definitely a joke there. That's how I would see a lot of it. There's a joke there, you know. So the joke that I had was, uh, the, I've only done a few times, but I have a lot of stuff that's kind of like, I never give up on anything. So until it's embedded, like, it's always there, you know. But the joke was something on the lines of, um, it, it's bad luck to, apparently it's bad luck to leave a hat in the bed, and now hats have, nobody wears hats anymore, so we must be a safer world, you know, um, but having said that, nobody uses horseshoes anymore, so maybe that, you know, balances it out, you know, so, so that would be something where you're not just sitting at a desk going, I have to think of something funny, it's much yeah, more, yeah. you know, or, or, I mean, the way I used to do a lot of stuff would be, especially before the pandemic, really, where you're meeting people, you know, like you might tell a story and people laugh at it and you go, oh, there was one thing when I started where, well, there's a, a routine that I had about going to an nightclub that was kind of my big routine when I was quite new. And I kind of shamefully used it for a long time, but people always like it. But it was actually, I said it to my brother, like I was, I was kind of joking, but I was kind of not joking either that the bouncers in Cork were always kind of, especially when you look young, which I did, like, you know, I had a lot of trouble getting into nightclubs, you know, like I, I was the right age, but they would just go like, you're not getting in, you know, and I'd, <laughs> I'd be trying to say, look at my ID and they just, you know, so. There was a kind of a, a club there and, uh, the guy, the guy wouldn't let me in. And, uh, I was, you know, I tried to argue the toss with him and he goes, he goes, stand over there. And I was there, but I'm 18 or whatever <laughs> it was. And he goes, stand over there. And I said to my brother, like, I'd be standing over there and I'm going, can I not just go home? Uh, <laughs> And and as actually my brother said, like that's that's funny. <laughs> Maybe you should use that because that that's really funny, you know. So I mean, I I don't know every stand-up seems to differ, but so some of it would be definitely notebooks full of you know twists on phrases and like yeah. I'm very verbal, so yeah. I suppose you can go back to stuff as well. Do you know what I mean? You can 
you might you might make a note of something and then a couple of months later revisit it i mean it, it can be like years yeah you know, yeah, but, yeah but like i had a well what you know i'm trying to think of which one to pick now there's, there's a few examples but there's a few things that that i would have had that i was thinking i should be able to make that work i mean i, I had a, i had a joke which i probably should usually you just find actually if you just if you just don't worry too much about setting it up. Just throw it in as a one-liner. If they like it, they like it. And yeah, yeah, keep yeah. going. But the joke was about somebody bullying me. I went to a rugby school. And the bully, he, he wasn't a genius, but he, he was 99% perspiration. You know, which was, I think is, is a good gag. Like, but like, it, it might be just that. Like, don't, don't worry so much about the build-up. Just bang it out. Like, so I'd have, I'd have a lot of stuff like that where it's not really, in the set but it's it's there uh, and you know so that would be the style i mean i had the example i usually give is i have a, I have a joke but it's funny because I, I did an rte program on radio before they they asked to interview me and it's a slightly long story i probably shouldn't go into it but it was kind of a bit weird because somebody had recommended me to talk about one-liners so i thought okay well look you know i i, I write one-liners and you know so I arrive in and the, the guy goes, so we've got Michael May here. I believe you're a fan of one-liners. And I was going like, well, I wouldn't put it like that, you know. So I ended up kind of having to talk about like Groucho Marx and Oscar Wilde and all this stuff. So in the end, I said to him, well, like I'm a comedian myself, but I didn't think he knew, you know. And I said, I can give you an example of a one-liner. Like I'm, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks of this talking to you now of this terrible, <laughs> terrible experience but, so I, I said okay here's the one liner and it was a big one liner for me like it always got big big laugh but the joke was I'm single but I try and be, pos- I try and be positive about being single I tell myself that the bed is half full and the, the host of the show said and they laugh at that do they oh no <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> I was actually a tough guy, like, you know. <sighs> and the only thing was that, I mean, this whole thing's going to make me sound like a terrible name dropper, but somebody told me before, in, an English guy actually met me in the international, and I had just come off stage, and he said, Oh, you're the bed half full guy. And I was kind of going, Okay. And he said, I'm a friend of Jimmy Carr. That's Jimmy's favorite joke at the moment. No way. So I knew going into this fucker on RTE, like, well, like, I, I do have some validation for this joke. Like, you know, like it, it's a decent joke. Like I was quite proud of it, really. Like, but, but that, that was something that I had in a notebook forever, trying to get the right wording. Like, you know, I, I, I knew, like, okay, the glass is half full, the glass is half empty, you know, and then people would say, and I say, what glass? And, you know, I say, okay, well, I can't do that because people have done that. And and then, you know, I, I think I must have come up with the bed bit and then, but how do I, yeah, you know, yeah. what, what's the best way, you know? So that's, for me, is, I'm not, I like the honing of it and I like the writing. Like, a lot of the stand-up that I like, you can see that's written. I'm not. I, I feel there's a lot of stand-ups are kind of coasting and charisma, and I'm a yeah, little yeah. less. I mean, that's very much the Irish house style, like you know. But, yeah, well, there's a lot. Of, um, obviously, a lot of tinkering goes on with 
with words and things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more of an American style, but I tell stories as well, and so it's a bit of kind of a mixture of Irish and American. But I do I do like that. So, I mean, do, so do you have a favourite aspect of what you do? So, if you can only do one thing for the rest of your life, is it the writing aspect of things or yeah. the stand up stand up aspect of things? I think it's the writing aspect. You know. If I had to pick one, I mean the. The kind of problem for me has been that I haven't been well, so I've been, I got diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. Oh, wow. So I have, I mean, I effectively have chronic fatigue. So actually, ironically, standing up is hard for me to do. So as a stand-up comedian, like, you know, so I used to, like, I I went to London, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of time ago now, but I went to London in 2003 and I was doing the circuit there. And then I went back to Ireland, but I was going back and forth. So I was doing 120 gigs a year at least. Yeah, know? yeah. But I just I just stopped being able to physically do that, you know. Yeah. So, so like, I kind of, more recently, I started to kind of see if I brought a stool up. I, I, I mean, I kind of felt a bit, even though I wouldn't feel nervous about performances, I did kind of feel, well, do I want to be the only one in the laughter lounge to be like Dave Allen producing a... Oh, no, exactly. If it's good enough for Dave Allen, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but like Dave Allen was doing it in a TV uh, context, you know, <laughs> like, so I kind of worried about stuff that I'm already kind of small and, yeah, you know, yeah. it's a big room. And, yeah, no, I mean. But more recently, I started doing some solo shows in art centres and I was sitting... Yeah, yeah. I was, I was standing for maybe 20 minutes and then that would be really, I think I'd better sit, you know. So in terms of choice between the two, I mean, I've kind of had to, I'm kind of being pushed away from performing really mm. because it just wasn't well enough, you know. Yeah. Um, like I haven't done a, a gig because I've got this underlying condition. I haven't gone back to gigging yet. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's funny talking about stand-up really because it's a bit academic because I haven't done it for so long, you know, but like I've written for other comedians and I've written for TV shows and stuff, you know, so yeah, it, it would tend to be the writing. I mean, I think my my detractors, I gather, think like, oh, well, he can write, but, you know, he's not really a comedian or a thing, but like my, my delivery is quite deadpan, but I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I feel... It's a bit like Ringo Starr's drumming. It's like, well, look what suits the material. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, you know, it, it may not be running around the place like Michael McIntyre, but like, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It suits what I do and it suits my persona. And I don't have the energy, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I don't have the energy to move around. So I just sort of stand in the one spot. You yeah. Know? No, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are not, you know, don't like Michael McIntyre and that that, that whole energy yeah. thing. Well, that's true. Um, and they just I want mean, a nice, the, you know. The, the, the thing about Irish stand-up, to an extent, is what happened was, I don't know, have you been to the International? Yeah, 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 many times. Yeah, well, you're saying that you're here for 20 years. I mean, I couldn't put a date on the change, but basically what kind of happened with the International was that there's was running the club. It was Joe Rooney's club originally. Yeah. The Thursday night and then Des took it over and it was one night. It was a comedy Saturday on Wednesday, Des was on a Thursday. Yeah, yeah. So then Des got on TV. So suddenly it was full. 
and then before that it would often not be full you know uh you'd, you'd often be lucky to afford a taxi on the way home really you know <laughs> i mean it was i mean i'm not joking like i mean it was you might get 20 quid and you you you're kind of thinking well i don't want to spend this in a cab you know yeah yeah um, i think aiden took over didn't he for a, for a yeah, while yeah aiden, aiden took over so you had to make an answer short anyway it became thursday friday and two shows saturday yeah yeah and, and rams so they started selling seats on the stage now i was uh, made myself unpopular <laughs> by complaining about that <laughs> i i didn't think that was a good idea really for a number of reasons but anyway it was done but i think what happened then was that in a way i would see myself as a little bit of a, a what's the word not a throwback but a, a maybe a dinosaur that I had come from before that, yeah, where it was yeah. a bit more like French theatre. You, you you didn't have people on the stage offering yeah. each other a polo mint and stuff. Yeah, well, like, that's bizarre. You know, like a friend of mine, somebody actually walked into him when he was on stage. They were, they got up in the middle of his thing to go to the loo and they walked into him. So energy became really the only way to get through that gig, I felt, you know, right, right. because it was very full. And there was no microphone, and before it got full, that was fine because it was more like French theatre. But then when it was Rams, yeah, the quiet, the quiet spoken comic who you need to listen to, who's timing everything and has, you know, it goes this way because this is the way that it works. I mean, somebody could just order a drink or drop a glass <laughs> or, and drown it out. Yeah. So I did. I did notice that a lot of the acts that came along after that were much more about energy and charisma and there wasn't the same kind of thing of okay these are my sculpted jokes yeah yeah and the people who did were kind of i mean i've heard recently people that kind of secondhand really i suppose like oh well you know low energy comics and you know like as if it's like really you know well what are they thinking you know um which I think is absurd, really. I mean, I, to me, outside a club setting, it's all about material. I mean, why why would you bother watching somebody yeah, for yeah. an hour yeah, and exactly. something to say? So, but anyway, that's my theory as an elder lemon as to what changed. <laughs> you know that it, that a lot of the acts, and you know, I mean, maybe they would have been like that anyway, and they're they're good at it, but. I certainly would have felt that that was a change, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so you you're a podcaster as well. Podcasting is another another string to your bow. I mean, um, so how did that all how did that all begin? Well, it's kind of funny because up to the pandemic, it wasn't really a podcast. It was a radio show. Yeah. Um, um I knew a guy who was broadcasting on 2XM, which was the digital station. Mm-hmm. So a guy called Cahill Murray, he's an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he did a bit of comedy, and he was a friend of Dez. So I toured with Dez in 2009. I did like 42 nights with him, like, so it was really wow. quite intense. And Cahill was the open spot. And Cahill was in college with Dez. So Cahill said, I'm doing this kind of digital thing as well as my other stuff. Do you want to come on it? So I came on it and I'd always wanted to do something like that. I love Yeah, music. yeah. So um, 
so I did a pilot then and I sent it in and uh, I didn't kind of realize in a way that I mean I won't, I won't trash the station but like they weren't paying yeah and really that became an issue um like originally what they were doing was every so often they do a kind of a best of 2xm on 2fm right so that made it that kind of sweetened it like you know that every so often you'd get on and you could say on your cv you know i broadcast on 2fm even though i i I probably don't say that, but I should. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that was the, the whole point. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. So that stopped after a while. And um, yeah, I mean, there were various aspects of it I wasn't thrilled about. But the main thing was for someone with fatigue to be doing all this work and getting paid nothing was really, yeah. Yeah. you know. So then they said, we're going to pay you. And they started paying us 20 quid a show. Wow. Oh my god! At at most thirty, but I think it was twenty. And my, my partner said, "Like, well, this is worse because they thought about what you want." <laughs> exactly. Is that all I want? Twenty quid. I know. I know. They say, like, oh well, look, you know, we're overstretched and blah blah blah. But so I just, I just, I just came to a point where I, I just said, "Look, I can't do this anymore." Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, uh, so that was twenty eighteen. And then the pandemic happened. Mm. So I started doing, I started doing it as a podcast on my own back then. Yeah. Like before they were really just like episodes that were broadcast and I would put them up on a site for the, you know, so, they, you know, this was, they were kind of a podcast, but they weren't, it was a radio show. Yeah. Yeah. So I did, um, I did six coronavirus specials. So they were all kind of, uh, not don't, don't stand so close to me that was, <laughs> that was too obvious but there, there was just all this kind of um, I'm afraid of everyone by the national there was all this kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Thing. so then what happened was again I kind of felt like oh, I'm spending a lot of time on this and I'm not doing up writing blah blah so then a guy on Twitter was doing these polls where he'd pick a particular year yeah and you, you had to vote for your top albums of the year. Right, okay. So I thought, well, maybe if I started doing tie-in shows, um, I might get an audience. So I did, uh, I've done about 12 or 13 of them. And then I started kind of, I did maybe two or three, like it's called Pimp My iPod, so it's just themed shows. So I went, I went back and did kind of three, stuff that had nothing to do with the Twitter poll and nothing to do mm. with coronavirus. They were just back to the old format. So I, I go in and out of it. I mean, I, I take long breaks and I get fed up and I think, yeah, oh, yeah. How, how you find it. But I, I just sort of feel like the editing is cruel. Like there's a lot of editing, you know, to, to, to upload the tracks. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's time consuming. Yeah. In the studio, you know, when I, I used to go into RTE, I mean, the guy who used to do it was funny because, like, it was all, it was all too much for him. Really, he didn't want to do any anything for it. Like, he was going, "I'm not getting paid anything extra," <laughs> and I was going extra. Like, I'm not getting paid at all. I'm getting paid. <laughs> so he would say stuff like, "Yeah, you know, he he they commissioned me to do it," and then they said, um, "I said, so when am I going into the studio?" And they went, "Oh, you want to go into the studio?" Oh. But I thought if I was broadcasting for RG, I would be in a studio. Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, that's a health and safety nightmare. <laughs> I was like, 
<laughs> really? So, uh, you know, but but I, I managed to kind of insist eventually. But the good thing about that is, even though you have to get in there, I actually lived in Donnybrook. And I lived in um, Upper Eastern Street. So it wasn't too bad to get there. And once you'd done the show, once you managed to work out how to save it, which was another thing when it was done, there was no editing, you know. But when you do it at home, you know, you yeah. have to upload all the tracks. And, and I'm yeah. sure you have to do a bit of that. But, like, there's an awful lot with, with links and tracks. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, like, it's probably between that and planning them, you're talking about five or six hours at least. Yes, easy, yeah, easily. You know, easy. So, um, I mean, I just love to monetize it, to get paid to do it, because it's a, it's a good way, especially now that I'm not that well, that I can't really tour, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, I don't really, it seems like the days of that sort of specialist DJ, the kind of Dave Fanning type, kind of gone you know they're all doing playlists now you know yeah. and like I was sort of told by one of the stations you know I, I sent one of the shows through through somebody recommended me and I sent in the show and he said like you're doing a lot of talking about the music there's nothing to say about the music <laughs> I was kind of going like well, you know this is it felt like the devil in my ear like I was going like well, I could talk about the music and he was kind of going like, well, you know, you could be on, you could do quizzes and phone-ins, uh, you know, because, you you know, you can obviously speak on mic. And, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like that kind of radio really. I mean, I, yeah, I, no, I know what you mean. So, I mean, you're obviously, obviously a huge, huge music fan. I mean, so yeah. have, you, have you had any sort of major music loves in your life, of bands or artists or? Uh, Bowie would be the first one. Uh-huh. The, one of the teenager Bowie, yeah. Um, one of my big things uh, was a guy who died last week, uh, Carl Coughlin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, like being from Cork, he was a really big figure for, for what, for me, but for us, I suppose, mm. you know um so that was actually a real shock you know um like i'd met him once very briefly i mean i didn't know him you know but he was a big deal for me you know yeah yeah um love the go-betweens um talking heads i mean i don't know if you can see <laughs> yeah i can say that is a, that's a crazy a cd collection going on in the background that's, uh, only some of them was <laughs> <laughs> And there's records and tapes in the attic, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of when I was younger, I suppose, was kind of verbal stuff like Elvis Costello yeah. and Billy yeah, Bragg yeah. and John yeah. Cooper Clark. So it was kind of proto stand up in a way, but like I, I would have to say that in a way, I'm not necessarily the biggest comedy fan. But I think that helps because I'm bringing in, I like movies and I like music. Yeah. No, like I I wouldn't, I don't know, is it just because when you're involved in it and you begin to see how it works that, like, like I wouldn't wouldn't go down to Kilkenny now, apart from the fact that I'm sore that I don't get asked to do it, but like I, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, if I get a pass to the Ivy Gardens, I will go go to some of the shows, but yeah, yeah. I think it can be interesting if your references are 
you know, more wide ranging than just, you know, I don't know, whatever, Jim Jeffries or whatever. Yeah, like whoever yeah, you, yeah. You like. Yeah. I mean, would you have been a, a gig goer in your, have you been yeah. a, much of a gig goer in your past? Well, you, you haven't seen me treating all my... <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, reasons a, for asking. <laughs> a leading question. Well, I mean, it, it, it's really kind of nostalgia at this stage because yeah. I haven't been to a gig. I, I might be going to the National and the Marquee on the bank holiday weekend. Yeah, yeah. I thought that'd be amazing. We, we, we have tickets, like, so I, I kind of think, well... You know, it, it might be a calculated risk. There's a bit of the outdoor about it, even though it's um, it's not really outdoor. But you know, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And, well, yeah. So I, I would have, when I look back on how many gigs that I used to go to, it's just amazing. I suppose I was single for so long that I didn't, you know, I didn't have anything distracting me. <laughs> I, I, I just went to so many gigs. It's unbelievable, really. Like you know, like and. I mean, most of them I would remember. The odd one, you would go, oh, my gosh, I remember, <laughs> I remember going to that, you know. Uh, I mean, somebody said to me, uh, a guy in the music business said, um, you know, what? With, with Twitter, you lose all tone of voice and context. So I wasn't sure exactly what he was saying, but he said, you could have bought two electric picnic tickets with, with the money you spent on those <laughs> I, I couldn't really understand it because I sort of felt like, yeah, but that's 40 nights out. <laughs> you know, like they were good nights. Like, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. I've I, I never understood festivals. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's crazy. The, the price of festival tickets these days is just ridiculous. They, they don't suit me partly because of my fatigue. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I played um, the comedy tent and electric picnic before. Yeah. And I started wandering around the site because my cousins were there and my legs just went. I mean, there's just wow. so much territory there. Yeah, yeah. It's always huge places. I went to see Fleet Foxes in a tent and I think I saw Ockerville River. Echo and the Bunnymen were on when I was on stage, I think, and I would have seen them. I saw maybe two bands. Mm. And then I thought, well, that's enough for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like like that, would, that would be what I would see as a good night out yeah 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 exactly it just doesn't i i I just don't have that thing where i could go to okay well now we're going over here i just yeah 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 i much prefer to see the blue nile in the in vicar street or the olympia than to be going okay well now we've seen the blue nile and we're off to see let's go to the other tent i mean i i suppose um like that time I went down was kind of funny because there was a guy, I won't name him now, he was involved in comedy <laughs> at some level, but I had two tickets. And just before I was with my partner, who, who doubles as a chauffeur, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I had no uh, but uh, I, I had no way of getting down there. So yeah. I said to this guy, I have a spare ticket if you drive me down and drive me back. I didn't want to get involved with camping or anything. So he said, uh, well, I don't have any interest in the music, but I hear it's good buzz. <laughs> so, so we went down and uh, we were in the canteen and uh, Flaming Lips, the members of Flaming Lips. Oh, man. Yeah. Beside us with high-vis vests on. And I was, I was kind of nudging him and he was going, what? And I was going, <laughs> you know who that is and, totally oblivious. Said, no. and I said the flaming lips and he went I still don't know who they are 
So then um, I was getting food. Like we were in with the the artist area, and I had all my because I've got allergies and all part of the thing. So I had sort of said to them, "Look, what's in? You know, is there sauce on this and butter and dairy?" Yeah. And, yeah. And they said, "Look, we'll do something especially for you. Just come back up, and we'll hand it to you." So I said, "Grand," and I went and I sat down, and then I saw them coming up. So I went up to get the plate, and there was this red-haired girl who was looking daggers at me because she thought I was skipping line, <laughs> and it was very clear she was not happy with me. And um, I went outside then, and I somehow ended up near her, and it was Florence in the machine. Oh uh, my God! <laughs> It was quite funny, really. <laughs> but like, it was wasted on him. Like, I, I do think there's a lot of people who go down to Electric Picnic and they've no interest in music. They're not really, I mean, obviously, there are people who like music, but there's also people yeah. who are there for the buzz, you know, the, the drinking and the yeah, whatever yeah. else they're doing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. guess that um, maybe when you're younger, like I'm in my 50s now and I have a long standing illness. So, I mean, I went to Fela when I was, my, my girlfriend's from Port Arlington, they say, when I was a chap. Uh, <laughs> that, that's some weird Port Arlington expression. When he was just a chap. But I went to um, Fela in the 20s and was drinking and stuff. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I guess I guess that you just maybe get old and, you know, you, to, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have found the comedy gigs that satisfactory, mm. you know. Like we did Oxygen, um, yes. which was an awful experience. The whole thing was just like the last days mentioned in Rome. It was just horrible. There were like a, there would be guys just peeing in the burger queue. Like, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, and that's one thing that happened. Like you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, I totally believe it. I totally. And it was really muddy, and it was like the battle of the Somme. Like it was just so muddy, and and we were playing in the comedy tents, and people had come into shelter from the rain, so yeah. they weren't there. And there was a guy. We were up on the stage, and there was a kind of a metal grill around the stage, and there was a guy who must have been out of it on something. And anytime he liked a joke, he would whack the grill with his hands and he was mashing his hands like his hand was just bloody and pulped. And no, he didn't seem to have anybody with him who would kind of, you know, just <laughs> it's like, you know, don't, don't do that. You might, you might need that hand. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think that, I mean, I don't want to talk myself out of any bookings, but I think probably I don't get it asked. To do that much of them because they think you know he's going to do material and really <laughs> trying to MC it I mean again it's energy and all this stuff like but like you know the, the people at Oxygen are not there to listen to wordplay really like, yeah yeah that's the thing I suppose you, you could be better off doing uh, MCing do you know what I mean kind of just doing bits coming in between performers and things yeah it depends on what you're interested in you know yeah 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 I mean I think that there are gigs where what I do is very suited to it. Yeah. And the kind of energetic guy is, is in trouble and vice versa. So, like, you know, I remember playing the Laughter Lounge and one of the bouncers came up to me and went, ah, Jesus, they're all fucking lawyers. <laughs> you know? And I, I was going, like, good, you know, <laughs> like, 
these are my people, you know. <laughs> uh, like they were they were clapping little bits of wordplay because that's what they're into is language, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And the rest of the stand-ups are going, bloody lawyers, you know. <laughs> uh, it, for me, if there's too many stags in or too many hens in, I kind of go, oh, I'm just going to be a little bit of... I mean, I think I can do what I do, but I have to do it quicker and I have to kind of just power through it. Yeah. You know. No, hens and stags must be a, a stand-up's <laughs> worst nightmare. Yeah, well, I mean, like junglers. I don't know. Were you ever at junglers? Yeah, yeah, in London. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, junglers and the laughter lounge would aim at hens and stags. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's marketed to parties, and I mean, I never accepted really that that was a good thing. You know that, like, I mean, I've been on a few stags, and you know, the last thing you want to be doing is listening to some guy. Yeah. Why would you go to a comedy show? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't really, I mean, hens are actually harder to deal with, funny Oh, enough. God, yeah, I can imagine. You know, so I used to do jonglers once a month for the money, and the money was great. And I learned to kind of have a set that was kind of 18 minutes, like, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and get off. But, like, I remember playing jonglers bowl in the East End, so mm. like, I mean, like sometimes they wouldn't even notice you were on stage. Like, you know, they, they just, like, you just talk to yourself, really. Just really. I mean, the, the funniest thing, I mean, this is not here and there, but like, Chandra's Bowl was known to be, like, they had something like 23 branches. Yeah, yeah. Some, some of them were no, notorious, you know. Like, I think, I think it was Portsmouth. Is it Portsmouth or Southampton? I, I, I don't think I ever played there was one of them and um, Bo, you know, there was just a few that had were, were worse than the others, you know, some wow. of them were actually quite nice, you know, but I was playing Bo and, um, you know, Glenn, you, you've interviewed Glenn. Glenn yes, was. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Glenn was on and Glenn was doing this routine and he was going, you know what I like? I like soccer. I like playing soccer. I like uh, talking about soccer. And there was a guy at the front, he was going, football, <laughs> fucking football, right? It's football. And Glenn goes, but the one thing I like most about soccer is how annoyed you guys get when I call it soccer. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, but that's, it's funny when you've got uh, two equally good words to describe something. It's like that whole manatee sea cow dichotomy. <laughs> And there was silence in Jongler's bow, except for Kevin Goldie, who thought it was hilarious that he was doing this <laughs> in, in Jongler's bow, like, you know. But it was, it was very admirable that he would have had the nerve to do it. Like, yeah. Oh, Kevin's, Kevin's just such a legend, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, even when I started, he was kind of at it for a long time. Like, Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, yeah, Michael. It's been an absolute much, pleasure. Uh, I don't know how much shape it had, but... No, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.